Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. Well, hey, X, here we go. We're in the wake of the Iowa, I'm learning, I'm learning here, Liberty and Justice yes. dinner. Uh, it was long. It was full of applause and glow sticks. What was, what was your take? And then I'll give you mine. Well, it's, it's actually important because it's sort of the kickoff to the final sprint here. I actually thought that it was very instructive because, you know, there are candidates on the rise there. Elizabeth Warren, who's been sort of rising steadily from the beginning and is now, uh, the undisputed front runner in Iowa. And then Pete Buttigieg, who's been making a run lately and, uh, has, has become a major challenger there. So, what was interesting to me was just listening to their speeches because they seem to be training their focus on each other. Let's first give a listen to Pete Buttigieg, who was the first speaker of the night. Here's the, here are what I think the nut paragraphs of that speech. I will not waver from my commitment to our values or back down from the boldness of our ideas. But I also will not tire from the effort to include everyone in this future we are trying to build. Progressives, moderates, and Republicans of conscience who are ready for a change. The time has come. We will fight when we must fight, but I will never allow us to get so wrapped up in the fighting that we start to think fighting is the point. The point is what lies on the other side of the fight. Several speakers later, Elizabeth Warren spoke. Let's listen to her speech because it's almost as if she was listening to Buttigieg's speech exactly. and responded to it. Let's let's hear it. I'm not running some uh, consultant-driven campaign with some vague ideas that are designed not to offend anyone. I'm running a campaign based on a lifetime of fighting for working families. I'm running a campaign from the heart. 2020 is our time in history, our time to dream big, fight hard, and win. Well, there you have it, you know, the perfect contrast between the two of them. I mean, I agree. I think they were the two headline events. My main take is we talked so much about this uh, dinner last week. It's really important, but nobody changed anything. You know, there was no, I don't think, brilliant oratory. I'm not sure politicians today do it the old school way where they write a speech and really prepare it. I think Buttigieg kind of did, but it, and it was one of his better outings, but it, uh, I don't think anything really changed, but there's no doubt he's notched his way up to the front runner, uh, co-front runner, I think, almost with her. She's yeah, but, ahead. But, but I, I think the big, th- the big thing is, is strategic. Right, the battle is joint. I mean, I don't think that the uh, speeches themselves were so memorable as to, you know, Barack Obama in 2007 made a speech that was, was really uh, transformational in the race. That doesn't happen all that often. Uh, but what this was was a roadmap uh, you know, later on, she offered an even sterner rebuke of, uh, you know, candidates who are unwilling to fight. If I had a dollar for every time Elizabeth Warren used the word fight in that 10 minute speech, 
I'd probably be eligible for her wealth tax. Uh, <laughs> I think you might so, already be. But you're right. I mean, it's always fight. fight. Every third week, she orders coffee in the morning. It's like I'd like cream, sugar, and fight. But this is the principle. This is, I think, the big dividing line. Obviously, there are ideological dividers, and we can talk about those. And Medicare for All has become a flare point for that. And she released the details of her plan, which I think in certain ways exacerbated that that gulf there but the we should talk about that in a second but i think what buddha judges identified is this uh divide between and she herself has identified she believes that democrats she represents that core of democrats who believes that the answer to trump and to the w- republican recalcitrance during the eight years of the Obama was to fight that Obama didn't fight hard enough that if we only fought hard enough Mm -hmm. that we would prevail and it's kind of a a zero-sum game view of things and he he is arguing more on the side of compromise more on the side of uh, trying to build consensus Um, I, I think that this is going to be the debate moving forward and it, it actually is a it is an important debate for the Democratic Party to have. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think she, I'd love to have Kreskin involved here to read her mind because I don't know if she. We talk a lot about her pivoting because if she doesn't, if she runs this, you know, completely populist lefty campaign, there's so much risk for the Democrats in the in the general election. It's almost like she's of a wing of the party that has not traditionally had at least in recent history, much power in the party, but they see with the weakness of Trump, this is their moment, and it's kind of working for her in the primary. I thought it was interesting that there was a piece in the New York Times yesterday by Steve Ratner, who's a good voice from kind of the more, you know, yeah, center-left, but the guy, business but, yeah, wing, the, the I would call it, of the modern Democratic yeah. Party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but a good Democrat served in the Obama administration, you know, and he was, the, the, it's a it's an article worth reading because it is a pain scream about her plans and both the political downside and mostly the economic downside. So that'll be the other part of the debate. On one hand, if she wins the caucus, she'll start to have the atmosphere of a winner. But on the other hand, there's so much with her for Republicans to work with. So I think Buttigieg is going to try to turn that ideological wedge and that fighting tone wedge, and too much like Trump, fight, 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 every day more gridlock, uh, it, into also an argument about beating Trump. It'll be interesting well, to see if he, he can pull it off. Know, I think he's got a lot to work with. We should point out, though, that he is not the uh, the the leading proponent of that point of view. Joe Biden continues to be in polling the front runner in the national race, not in the Iowa race where he's fallen into a three-way tie with Buttigieg and Sanders, he had, you know, one of the questions going into this LJ dinner was uh, how he would perform because there was no prompter, no notes, and there are these continuing performance issues with Biden. And he turned in uh, what I I guess work, workmen like, uh, but it, <laughs> it was a, a little strange and a little meandering. And then, then one of the strangest was this little interlude here. How can we walk into a situation where today... Children went to school today learning how to duck and cover because they may get shot in school. Hey, honey, how are you? May get shot in school. Talk about a troubled soul in a country. 
How about he's in the middle of winding up about how these kids are learning how to duck and cover so they don't get killed, and he leans over and says, hey, honey, how are you to some child there who's listening to how terrifying her her life is? It was just a weird little interlude. But on the whole, he, he was he didn't have a good he didn't have a great performance. But more than that, Mike, you know, one of the things about this dinner is it's an organizational challenge. Buttigieg turned out a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, Elizabeth Warren turned out a lot of people. There were 13,000 people in the stands. Uh, many of them committed to those two candidates. Uh, Biden, who is the national front runner, the, the best known of all the candidates, uh, did not have a showing at that dinner. And I think this is one of the problems he's going to have in Iowa and perhaps elsewhere is he is not, he, he is, he, he stirs affection, uh, respect, uh, but not a lot of enthusiasm. He, he keeps showing himself to be a slow pony at this. I mean, they, they're a front runner in decline and trouble. So what they desperately need is a moment to take charge of the race because they're still the biggest shadow on the field. And they didn't do it effectively with the Trump attacks on him and his son. This was a moment where Joe needed to have speechwriters and needed to memorize a great text and needed a dramatic speech to change things. And again, he did his stump. I mean, they all did their stumps. I think Buttigieg worked the most at some new material. But it was a huge missed opportunity. And as you say, organizationally, the Pete people in particular, I think, with the optics for great, great advance, they were close to Elizabeth Warren. That in itself is news, get, getting, getting, showing the same kind of muscle she has. So, you know, I don't know how much more of this is going to happen before voters and we see the trend. Instead of giving Joe the nomination with all their affection for him, they're going to give him a gold watch and, and step him out of the way. And that's where right now Buttigieg is the understudy. Now, maybe somebody else will, will surge, but it, it's starting to come to shape. Yeah, well, you know, and you know that Amy, Amy Klobuchar has moved up a little in the polls and people are going to keep a, an eye on her off of her last debate performance. So unfortunately for her, she was in the second half. Uh, of the speeches uh, there. I want to talk about Kamala Harris in a second. But before I do, I want to say a word for high-priced consultants. You know, Elizabeth <laughs> Warren said, I don't have any of these high-priced consultants. I, I don't, maybe they're working at discounted rates. I know some of the people who are working for her who are very fine consultants, very shrewd strategists, and probably have contributed to the strategy that has been brilliant for her up till this point. In the campaign, so lay off the high-priced consultants. Yeah, we got a union lady. Say, Careful, uh, we'll make a few <laughs> calls here. I just saw the Irishman, by the way. We don't handle it like that. Um, the other thing about um, <laughs> Elizabeth Warren, th- this this is this consultant thing. I, voters don't care too much about it, though. I'm with you on that topic, but it's a little tell into occasionally she gets deep into the too clever by half business. The same thing, you know, she doesn't take big donor money. Well, she transferred $6 million in pure 100% grade A big donor money from her Senate account to her uh, presidential account and then, then had this conversion. So she always pushes it one step too far. And that whole veracity issue, can you trust Elizabeth Warren, including the funny money math on her plans, it, that could be a building narrative that could be a huge problem for her. And she feeds it with this kind of behavior. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I actually think this is a, a, a potentially big a vulnerability for her. And I think the Medicare for All plan that she turned out, uh, may be a part of that narrative. You know, she, she, she weighed in at uh, 12 trillion less than Bernie Sanders <laughs> and uh, ticked up the tax on billionaires by a, a notch or two and said nobody else will have to 
pay anything uh, for this program. And, and, you know, one of the things I think uh, as we head into the uh, the uh, debate on the 20th of November that she's going to have to watch out for is Bernie, you know, calling BS on her and saying that's not an honest. She could get attacked from the left and the right now that she's laid her her cards down there. And I, I suspect a lot of of the people on the stage will be giving Bernie a big pat on the back for, as they did in the last debate, for, uh, for being honest. One other thing, by the way, looking toward those debates, um, uh, Buttigieg can expect that he is going to get, uh, more respect in that debate and respect in debates, as you know, uh, is, <laughs> is painful. reflected. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is painful. It means that you become a target and you saw, you know, he had a little kerfluffle this week because he did an interview with our friend John Heilman on the circus. I think this is getting to be a two-way. It's early to say it. I'm not saying it is a two-way, but I think... But you see um, that. You see it's coming into focus, you and Warren. Yeah, and certainly a world where we're getting somewhere is that world, where it's coming down to the two of us. Obviously, there's a lot of candidates and a lot of things can happen, but I think that as that happens, the contrasts become clear. Look, the, the contrasts are real. Uh, they're substantive, respectful policy contrasts, but they're real. First of all, it's interesting you say that, right? So you accept the notion right now that it's kind of Warren against the field, really. Yeah. Someone's trying to become the the, the alternative to yeah. Warren right now, right? Yeah, I think it's it's shaping up that way. And so the former vice president of the United States is like, in your mind at this point, already like gone. I would say this: either he is the unstoppable front runner, and we can all go home, or he's not. Right. And anybody who's in this race uh, is here on the assumption that that he's not. This is the bane of every campaign manager and strategist when the candidate goes all analyst in public and starts, you know, assessing uh, his or her own chances. And in this case, you know, I think he was being very clinical, but the impact of it was it sounded like he was writing a dozen, a dozen or more candidates off, including Biden, uh, he said. And, and I think it was a huge mistake. He corrected it right away. But Kamala Harris and Julian Castro jumped on him. And the essence of their critique was, you know, he he's not getting any black votes. He's not getting any Hispanic votes. You can't be the nominee of the party if you can't appeal to those people. That is a vulnerability for Buttigieg. I think he's going to hear about it in that debate. Yeah, I'm I'm half with you on this because I totally agree that Which when half? they <laughs> well, here I'll, let me let me restate your argument in a slightly unfair way and then attack it. How's that? Okay. I'm with you when they start playing consultant, which of course they all love to do. They would, they would all love to do that every day. It, it is, it's, it's bad on a million levels. But I'll say that the one upside, a mistaken upside, so don't repeat it, you know, Pete, don't do it again, but is he gets to draw Kamala, uh, Harris and, um, Castro, and Castro literally had to call collect to the media to make his complaints about it <laughs> into a process debate that won't do them any good either. So I, I agree it, it was a mistake and he'll get the 72 hour penalty and somebody may get a debate line, but fundamentally he has a message based momentum right now and he's showing the organization to, uh, to do it. I, I want to do a quick call back to your point about Bernie because I agree on this one so much. I've been pitching it. People have heard me say it on the podcast. Bernie with his 30 million cash can go at Elizabeth from the left and just box her in, not only on whether or not she's really for Medicare for all, 
But again, the question that I think she'll be dealing with all the way to the New Hampshire primary of how the hell do you pay for it other than this Madoff accounting. So if Bernie sets the world ablaze, to use the language of the left, on that on that issue, man, I'm, I'm telling you, it's going to be a problem for her because there's going to be a squeeze play between Biden Buttigieg on one side and Bernie on the other. Now, whether or not he'll break the non-aggression pact and do it, I don't know. But my experience has been when they're losing, they uh, they do things. And that is a clear move for him. And she's left it you know, wide open to be done. The, the great thing about these races is you get tested. And we will find out how she responds to that pressure based on the performance for the first 10 months. Mm-hmm. You know, she's run a pretty smart campaign. And Perhaps they'll go in with a, a plan and a strategy to deal with what they know. I mean, the good thing about it is that uh, when everybody tips their hand, you kind of know what's coming. And yep. the question is, how do you game out how you're going to how you're going to uh, uh, respond to it? So Kamala, we should mention she, you know, she's stripped her staff down in all these other states. We talked a little bit about this last week. She spoke as well. You know, I, I think that it was the most coherent, uh, statement that she's made about her candidacy since, uh, her announcement. And she started off with the same theme about walking into the courtroom for the first time as a young prosecutor saying Kamala Harris for the people. And she riffed off of that. I think it was a better explication of her candidacy. The problem is that it was very, it, it still was focused very much on her. Whereas the, the Buddha judge message, the Warren message was, was focused on others, you know, so I, I don't know that she's going to make that much headway. Um, but she did have a good showing there. She has a good organization there. Um, this is the last gasp, uh, for her and she's clearly going to throw everything at it. Yeah, it's a decision made by necessity of cash flow rather than strategy. I mean, it's kind of a priori screwed up because on one hand, she says, I'm putting everything I have into Iowa. So then she, you know, strips down for money reasons her New Hampshire staff. But the purpose of Iowa is to give you momentum in New Hampshire. And that happens eight days after Iowa. So the idea that even if her dream comes true and she gets into, say, third place in Iowa, and bounces into New Hampshire, there will be an organic voter surge for her, but she won't have any machinery to really take advantage of it, nor to, you know, try to orchestrate some events that week when you, you have to do that to show the media the uh, momentum is real, so they amplify your messaging and hopefully you run the table to South Carolina where she, where she will have real opportunities should yeah. she do well in New and Hampshire. And she's left so, or, she hasn't touched her organization there. Their whole strategy has always been to do adequately in Iowa and New Hampshire. And then really uh, break through in South Carolina, where 60% of the vote is uh, African American in that primary. If she gets there, it will it will be uh, it will be an achievement. Be, finishing third in uh, Iowa is going to be tough, and it's you know more likely that she's fifth or sixth than third. So she will get momentum if she finishes third. Getting there is uh, easier said than done. One person we know who won't get there. Oh, is, one sec, David, before, before we go on to that in our funereal coverage of one more campaign, wouldn't you, if you were running Kamala, wouldn't you rather have some muscle to not get crushed in New Hampshire, assuming you do okay in Iowa, and then organically, let, I, I would rather have New Hampshire staff than South Carolina staff, even if I were her, because I think organically she'll do better in South Carolina if she doesn't get 
crushed in, in, you know, hypothetically in New Hampshire. I think the idea you can go to the New Hampshire show and not be part of it is a graveyard. But what, what, what would your call be? No, no, I think she's counting on, I think she's counting on Iowa momentum to propel her in New Hampshire. She's also probably making a judgment that in some sense the New Hampshire results are going to be discounted because You've got two uh, kind of near state senators in in Warren and Sanders running there, so you know that will discount New Hampshire uh, in some way. And if she just finishes in the top four there, she can get to South Carolina. But look, it's all speculative because um, she's taken a big tumble yeah. from yeah. her heights in the summer to now, and they're just you know they're throwing long. Now can we get to the funereal part? Yeah, do we play Amazing Grace or is that too snarky? I feel like it's too snarky. Well, probably I, I have it. to say, can I just say, I like Beto O'Rourke. I think he's a very decent person. I think he's a well-meaning person. I think he's a smart person. He was unprepared for this yeah. race. And, um, you know, he really didn't have a clear rationale for the race. He never found a way to reconcile his... I thought he had an advantage going in because he had a record as a moderate in the Congress and he had the ability to reach people all across the state of Texas and campaign in a state that obviously is, is quite diverse. And that was all advantageous, but he never really pulled it together in, in a message. And so a guy who started off the year touted as a real uh, potential star ends up quitting hours before the LJ dinner and going home for lack of funds. Um, I, 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 I am sorry for what happened uh, to him, but it's pretty clear why it happened. Yeah, it struck me as a classic Bambi versus Godzilla kind of thing. I mean, he... <laughs> I didn't know that ways, was a classic was a thing. Grassroots anyway, fundraising. <laughs> oh, a David Mamet book about Hollywood. But it, it, it was a fundraiser, a low-dollar internet-based fundraising list left over from the Senate campaign out looking for a presidential race. And as we both know, it's always message first in presidential politics and primary politics. And he was never really there. He, he, he's an okay communicator. But in some of those debates, he looked to me like a staff PR guy who wandered on stage. Or jumped on the no stage. Central Leaped on the thrust stage. Then it all got tactical, you know, the yeah. gim gimmick of the week. So, yeah, it, it was it was sad, and I feel sorry for the staff, I'm sure, just, you know, work their hearts out for him. But, you know, this is a high-stakes election, and if you don't come with a story and a message, then ultimately you don't deserve to be there in the voters. And, you know, you for that. those who who hoped that he would go home and run for the Senate, apparently he's not going to do that. And, and probably after the race he ran for president uh, would not be the candidate that people thought he would be for that mm -hmm. Senate seat. So every all Democrats are wee-weed up about, the uh, New York Times poll that was published uh, this week that showed uh, Trump in, you know, relatively competitive positions in all of those battleground states that he that delivered the presidency uh, to him. Biden was ahead by a few points in most of them. Warren was behind him uh, in most of them. And it was a, a kind of a wake up call a year out that impeachment notwithstanding and all the controversy surrounding Donald Trump. Uh, he remains a, com a competitive candidate. And, uh, you know, there's a new poll out this morning uh, from the Washington Post that make people feel better. Yeah. I'm not sure how meaningful it is, but had Biden leading him 17 nationally and all the candidates, including Buttigieg and Harris, uh, uh, beating him fairly handily. Um, 
you know, but the reality is it's going to come down to those battleground states and Donald Trump, uh, you know, unless he's removed by the Senate, which I don't think he will be. I know you have a, you have this crazy ass view that somehow the, uh, the light will shine and oh. you, every episode <laughs> you start up on this thing. I have said it is not impossible because the future is uncertain, but I agree <laughs> the election were held today in the Senate. Your Sydney whiplash version of the GOP would be fulfilled and they would gutlessly not vote to impeach him. But hey, let me pick up. I the keep looking point. for evidence reasons, not to feel that way, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Go ahead. Yeah. You're not invited to the same secret meetings, but yeah. I hear you. I you're know. probably what right. Is that meeting hell? We're now up to a, uh, basically a double porta potty sized uh, meeting room where. <laughs> We're growing. Uh, but look, on these national polls, I, you know, I live in Los Angeles, so I'm constantly accosted by terrorized Democrats who come up to me with kind of what I call the Hogan's Heroes thing. You seem so reasonable for a Republican. I said, well, <laughs> ask me about a few issues. I can, I can disabuse you of that notion, <laughs> but I'm a right wing nut. But, um, but what about Nate yeah, Silver? Slash- me. I can vouch for you. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You know. Um, what yeah. about, uh, this New York Times poll? We're going to lose. And then they crawl under the Prius and, you know, try to call their shrink. I, I, I just say, wait a minute. There's only one poll that counts this early. It's called the Murphy poll and you're one point behind. Do something about it. You know, what people like polls because they, they psychologically want to feel comfortable. God, Trump's down 80 points. It's over. I can relax. Well, no, you don't get to relax. Fight, you know? And we can't, this is like tasting a cake when there's, you know, two eggs and a, a bunch of flour and a stick of butter all sitting in a plate. You have to cook it. You have to have a campaign. So I would tell them not to be overconfident, but I think the one news in the ABC poll, the Washington Post poll, is like almost every poll, Trump's numbers are shit. So if they can get a campaign together with an attractive candidate to somebody other than just the woke squad, they could win. And that's what the next year, it is a year now, is all about. So I would uh, I would fret less, read polls less, and fight more if I were a Democrat. Yeah, the difference between these polls, and we've discussed it before, is that, um, you know, we don't elect people nationally. If we did, Hillary Clinton would be president. It's likely that Donald Trump will lose the popular vote nationally by five million next time uh, because of all your neighbors in California uh, and in places like New York and others running up the score. But it is going to come down to these states and the ability to be competitive in those states uh, actually is important. And the theory that all you have to do is 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 run up the score with the base right. isn't isn't it's not empirically uh it's not empirically right so back to your uh back to your friends uh in the senate uh you know this is you you hear it increasingly now you know now especially that the evidence is beginning to be disgorged by the house intelligence committee more and more republican senators at least saying quietly uh yeah he probably did this. He probably withheld military aid to try and leverage, uh, some dirt on Biden. And it was a, it was a bad thing to do. But by the time we vote on it, we'll be well into an election year. People will be voting. And, um, and, uh, so, you know, let's let the people decide. It's the Merrick Garland argument and they're increasingly embracing it. It's the safe harbor for, uh, you know, virtuous but frightened Republicans. Yeah, look, it's the only thing they have. And it's an argument that outside of the the bubbles of process crazy, you know, D.C., 
has some appeal, which is, look, you be a juror. Fire him a year from now if you don't like him. But why are we clogging up, to use uh, to use an oldie but a goodie from the Democratic lexicon, the people's business with, uh, with all the silly impeachment stuff? So they sound exactly like... Uh, uh, Democrats did during Clinton. So, I, look, I, I, you know, my view on Trump, I do think there are two things going on under the surface that even that message of last resort, you know, may not be enough, which is even if they don't get to 20 in the Senate to convict him in a trial, I believe trial time, won. highly unlikely, I will not say impossible, but trial time is going to be different than now because there will be new information. The Democrats are put, going to put on, I think, a fairly competent public show, and they've got very credible witnesses. But more important than that is the internal GOP polling is going to hell in the Senate races, including places that Republicans would have thought four months ago were safe. So as Republicans start looking at the proverbial political hanging in the morning of losing the majority in the Senate, even if they don't convict Trump, it's going to come down to a calculation of, God, how do we survive the majority? Now, does that mean they all vote? No, I, I again, I'm not there. But the pressure is going to go up, not down. And you might start hearing a stronger version of this message of, look, we, okay, he's a bit of an asshole. In fact, we're going to pass a don't be an asshole law for him. But that doesn't mean impeachment, go, you know, vote yourself. But then Trump will react to that and start re- attacking Republicans. And this thing could churn even more into a, into a tornado disaster. So my, my main prediction is stay tuned. It's going to get even rougher. I would just a little, a little listener note. Uh, I sat down. Uh, in Arizona this week with Cindy McCain, and I asked her the question, what would John McCain be saying right now? And she had some really interesting things to say. So that's the Axe Files on CNN, 7 o'clock Eastern on uh, Saturday night. Just a couple of other things before we get to uh, the mailbag. One is three gubernatorial elections uh, coming up, two today, uh, one later in Louisiana, Mm -hmm. Trump has campaigned heavily in all those states, Kentucky, Mississippi, Louisiana, where he was a runaway winner and still polls well. Do Republicans have to win all those races? If he loses any of them, and we'll know in a few hours uh, on two of them, that's a, yeah. that's not a good development. For yeah, the, the, on the other hand, if he wins all three, he'll claim he's got momentum. And Yeah, well, the, the media uh, you know. makes the mistake of always covering wins and losses, where, as you well know from your many years haunting the sports books of Las Vegas, it's the point spread that Pazer takes. And so political pros watch the point spread. If Trump wins a 10-point state by one, you know, they get the sugar high claim of, quote, victory. But, you know, under the surface, that mm-hmm. was a nine-point dunking from the normal number. That's a signal. And in almost every, I call it mark-to-market event like that, since Trump was inaugurated, Republicans have done somewhere between bad and stone-cold awful. So, yeah, I'll, I'll be watching the spread. And I think it is possible they lose Kentucky, which, again, would give the media some yeah. real hysteria uh, to work up. So, you know, the, the win-loss thing's important for spin, but the spread is the story. I watched uh, Donnie Trump. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. Uh, this morning on uh, on CBS. He's starting his book tour for his book Triggered, which is kind of a long rant about the unfairness of how his father has been treated. But I have to tell you, he was uh, he was pretty effective, I thought, in uh, being an exponent of their message. He wasn't the overheated kind of character we've seen on the uh, rally stages. And it'll be interesting to see if this book tour helps her hurts him, but 
I'm betting based on his performance this morning, <clears throat> even as I found some of the things he said are wrong and outrageous, that he's going to be an asset in the next few weeks as he's out there with his book in terms of rallying of that base and flaying uh, the elites. And ultimately, Mike, everything gets rolled into the same storyline, which is Trump is the big change agent, uh, the cultural warrior and impeachment coverage. All the lousy things that people say about him are all a part of the establishment's uh, effort to quash this mm-hmm. rebellion of the people. That's the storyline. He delivers it uh, pretty well. Yeah, look, they, they they have food for their 42%, and the Democrats have to decide, are they going to fight that fire with oxygen or water? And if they fight it for with oxygen, is the 42 is going to turn into 46, 47, 48, and they, they know how to run their play. They, they don't have a lot of plays, but they're good at their play. And since that is the most obvious thing in the campaign, the question is, will the Ds try to get in front of that or – you know, try to reduce their thing to 40% and make it a terrifying contest. But I agree. I think Book Tour is a great platform, and he'll, you know, he'll sing their hits, and that's what they do. Uh, should we go to Mailbag? We yeah. should plug the Gmail address. We should. HacksOnTap at gmail.com. Took us three days to come up with that one. HacksOnTap at gmail.com. Send us your mailbag questions, and we'll start with who? So let's start with David, and it's not me, and I don't pick it just Stop because him. of the name, but the question is a good name. Well, why do campaigns do internal polls? Because they want to target specific groups. Are the pollsters associated with a campaign typically as qualified and accurate as a Gallup pollster? I think, Murphy, that a lot of our uh, brethren in the, and sistren in the uh, campaign world would be offended by that question, but want you take a stab at it. Yeah, sure. I'll make them even matter. The reason we waste money in polling instead of blowing it all on media, like uh, we used to sell, <laughs> um, polls are important. Look, it's real simple. Every campaign is about really at its core two things. New information, the story you tell about you and your opponent, and where you put your resources, time being the most important, but also money for digital and traditional advertising and everything else you do. So you need to be talking to voters to see what's getting through and what they're looking for. And the best way to do that scientifically is polling. Now, it's hard. It gets harder every day because people don't stand on the landline phone like they used to. But but polling is your radar screen. And the truth is campaigns often don't spend enough on polling uh, because they, they don't target as well as they could to reach the voters that might respond to them. I couldn't agree with you more. I used to tell candidates that, you know, a campaign's like a plane and you can build the plane and it will fly. But if you don't have a, a guidance system, you don't know where you're going to land. And you really, there are a hundred things you can say about any candidate uh, and about any campaign. And the art of it is to really understand those things that resonate with those people who are movable in the electorate and how you weave them together into a coherent narrative. And polling is an important uh, part of that, as are uh, increasingly, I, I think, and I'm happy about this, we relied on it heavily in the Obama years, uh, qualitative research and focus groups in which people express themselves in their own words. And you learn a lot about that. That often shapes polls. But uh, these pollsters, I think, are far more sophisticated than the public polling that you've seen, which is, um, mm-hmm. You know, in, in which uh, less money is invested and, uh, uh, you know, I think is often less sophisticated than the polling that you see in campaigns. OK, what do you got for me? Yeah, totally. Just to 
tag that for one sec. You know, it's funny, polling in journalism, polling is the, one of the few places where the media will create a story by taking a poll, often at the lowest price they can pay for it, and then cover it, which is weird. Agreed. Campaign pollsters are generally, we spend more and we get better data. This is from Joel, probably not famous pollster and friend of ours, Joel Benenson, <laughs> who writes, if Elizabeth Warren becomes the Democratic nominee, should we expect a strong centrist third-party candidate? If so, would that hurt Warren, or should we expect the anti-Trump vote to consolidate? What do you think? Well, I think there'll be a temptation on the part of some, particularly Wall Street Democrats, to fund an alternative to Warren. I think uh, two things. One is uh, that is easier said than done, and particularly starting late, getting on the ballot in uh, in in 50 states is hard to do. You know, someone like Michael Bloomberg could probably afford to do it in most of the states. But the effect of it, I think, would be to reelect Donald Trump. I, I've always believed that the a third party candidacy would advantage Trump by uh, driving voters off of the Democrat candidate. When you have a president who's sitting there with a 40 percent approval rating, a binary choice is probably better than multiple choice. And, you you know, you saw it last election. The third party candidates, Johnson and, and Stein and uh, some of these very close battleground states made a big difference and votes were driven off of Clinton by Trump, perhaps the Russians, to these third party candidates. So I, I think it could happen. There'd be a, maybe a move toward it happening. I think, you know, it, it's it would be a gift to Trump. Yeah, I agree with you. It's a, ultimately a fire or keep Trump, and the more fire Trump options you have, the vote splits. You know, it's one of these great romantic things that sound fun. Voters get psyched about it, but it is very hard mechanically to do. The system is built for two-party distribution. Maybe that'll change in the future, but now you're not on everywhere. And, you know, even if you get a plurality of votes, you got to go into this crazy thing where you ask the Democratic and Republican members of Congress who will vote to choose in unit voting to abolish their parties from the franchise of power. That is a big ask. I think I'm reminded a little bit, though, because I think it may happen, of the 80 race where you had Jimmy Carter, who was kind of perceived as a politically very weak president, had barely beaten back a primary challenge from Ted Kennedy, and Ronald Reagan was seen as a scary, horrible, you know, right-wing nut. So there was kind of a wine-and-cheese protest candidacy in John Anderson which had a lot of energy for a while there and I think uh, got into the mid to mid-higher single digits. So I, I think the kindling, although it's reversed, now now Trump is the incumbent and the Democrats the challenger, I wouldn't be surprised if we hear a lot about this and uh, it, it might happen. But I, I agree with you. I think it's risky because it, it is, uh, it's about firing Trump. Don't want to give him too many options. Last call. Up, oh, that's the music. Time for Last Call. Let me go first, David, then you can close the show. So my last call is uh, a defense of Thomas Jefferson, because it seems like nobody else is doing it. Now, you know, the Republicans traditionally have had a dinner. The Democrats have a dinner. They have called theirs the Jefferson-Jackson Day dinner. We've called ours the Lincoln Day dinner. Now, we haven't had to change ours because Lincoln freed the slaves cheap political point scoring there. But the point being, the uh, Democratic Party changed theirs to the uh, Liberty and Justice Day. I'm for liberty and justice. We all are. And look, if you were to have a time machine and transport Thomas Jefferson to today, by today's standards, owning slaves, many things he did, positions he took, 
are incredibly criticizable. But let's not erase our history. Most objective historians consider one of the top five presidents as a primary author of the original ideas of our democracy. Uh, He was a brilliant man in many areas. And if you judge him in the context of his time, he was exceptional and a champion of people. So we should study history honestly and call out the faults that we now understand and praise the progress that we've we've made. But the idea of burying a great American patriot out of embarrassment like Jefferson, I think, is silly and ridiculous. And politically, I think the mocking hurt the Democrats more than the uh, than the woke paintbrush uh, helped them. I noticed that you didn't offer a similar defense of Andrew Jackson, who was the other half of the old <laughs> well, I'm not the, crazy. the old JJ dinner. And I, I, I think I proposed this last week. Uh, maybe I'll make this my last call. I urge the Republican Party to embrace Jackson and call their dinners the Jackson Day dinners because no one channels Jackson, at least in a style and approach, more readily than Donald Trump. And since it's Donald Trump's Republican Party now, <laughs> Take Jackson. I said last we, week we, we should have the Jackson. I think Democrats should <laughs> start having Lincoln Day dinners because the Democratic Party reflects Lincoln in uh, much more readily than the Republican Party does now. So let's just reorganize, switch uniforms, change things up, and uh, everybody align as is appropriate. It is a crafty and brilliant plan, but unfortunately, the White House is already the president is going to order that we change him to Trump Pinochet dinner starting next year. So you you may be one up by the <laughs> present occupant of the Oval Office. We'll see uh, where uh, whether in about a year from now he will continue to be the uh, present occupant of the of the Oval Office. But there are many weeks between now and then, and we'll talk to you next week, Mike Murphy. Thank you, Axe. It was fun as always. Talk to you soon.